0: Good morning, Rocky Peak! Great to see you. If we haven't met yet, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here as well. And uh, whether you're joining us here in our worship center, you're out in the patio over in the venue, uh, just a special welcome. We're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so if you haven't done so already, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. I encourage you to take that out. We'll be using it a lot today. On top of that, for those of you who are watching, uh, joining us online. Depending on your format, there's either at the top or the the bottom, there's a link there that'll give you a kind of choice of three different options for downloading whichever format you like the most. But if you're ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Let's pray. Well, Father, we're just excited to be here on Resurrection Sunday, uh, this day when the history of the human race changed forever. This weekend, which is a pivot point for before and after, all that came before, all that comes after. And and Father, we know that this, this is a pivot point um, not only for our race, but but when we come to the, kind of the conviction about who you are and what you did on this weekend, it becomes a pivot point for our life. We move from death to life. And so, Lord, as we look at the kind of the evidence for your resurrection today and the implications for our lives, we pray that you would come by the power of your spirit, you'd open our eyes, or we acknowledge just what your word says, that one plants, another waters, but it's only God that gives a growth. Father, we acknowledge that we can go over your word, but it's, it's when you come by the power of your spirit and open our eyes that things happen. And so we just invite you to come as a church. We invite you to come not only here, but for those watching online, your spirit would hover over this place, and by the power of your spirit, you would speak, you'd teach, you'd open eyes, you'd transform our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Well, our story starts today outside a a major city. It's a major metropolis, cosmopolitan city. And uh, he's traveling home. He's been away for the last three years. And though it's only been three years. Honestly, it seems like a lifetime ago. As he approaches the city, there's a a mass of emotions, memories, thoughts all fighting for precedence in his mind. And honestly, as he draws closer, he's not really sure what to expect. There's a part of him that is so excited, full of anticipation, deep. Deep hopes. But if he's honest, there's another part that's full of fear and dread. He's not sure what to expect. But the one thing he knows is that the time has come. He can't delay any longer. The time has come to come home for the first time in three years. Because it's here and here alone. That he hopes to find the answer to some of the deepest questions of his life. Well today uh, we are continuing this series that we've been in now for about a year. <laughs> uh, it's called Christ, uh, Christ Culture and the Cross. And for those of you who are brand new joining us for Easter, a special welcome to you. Um, this series is an in-depth study of Uh, what I would consider one of the most important letters for our time in the second part of our Bibles that we call the New Testament. It's written by a man that we know as Paul, or we call him the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a group of Jesus followers that he and his team led to Jesus about three years before. They live in a very important uh, strategic Roman city. It's called the city of Corinth, and it's in the southern tip of Greece. And so uh, we call this letter the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, today we come to a very important passage in this letter. It's in chapter 15. And so if you have your Bibles, if you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up to the beginning of 1 first, uh, first Corinthians 15. There in your note sheet, you have a section if you open up your program called Easter for Skeptics, the Resurrection. And for those of you who are maybe new or maybe you don't have a Bible you didn't bring your Bible down the app, I've actually printed the passage there so you can follow along Today. Now, before we jump into this passage, I need to set it up just a little bit. Uh, The the question, the the topic on the table today is the resurrection, uh, the general resurrection of our race at the end of time, and then also the resurrection of Jesus at a certain point in time. And the question, of course, is why is Paul bringing up this topic? Uh, he's writing, after all, to Christians who have come to Jesus about three years before. But the reality is, is that these Christians who live in Corinth, they, they live in the midst of uh, a kind of a culture, kind of a Greco-Roman culture, where almost everyone believes in life after death, uh, what we call the immortality of the soul, but, but uh, almost no one believes in a resurrection from the dead, a physical resurrection of the dead from the end of time, and so so because of this cultural pressure, there are some of the members of the Church of Corinth who are actually beginning to question the, this concept of resurrection, a physical resurrection at the end of time. And so what Paul's doing today is he's going to go back and say, hey, th- this is part of the core message of Jesus. And so how can you be asking that question? Uh, don't you understand what the resurrection of Jesus means? And so in chapter uh, 15 and verse 1, we'll pick it up there, uh, Paul uh, says, now brothers and sisters... I want to remind you. So this is something that they know. He shared with them three years before. Uh, He said, I want to remind you of the what? The gospel, okay? And so so the, the word gospel in Greek is literally the word that says good news. But this word gospel, this is the word that kind of becomes the shorthand, shortcut, kind of the code word in the early movement of Jesus to describe of the life the death the resurrection of jesus and what it means for our lives and so he said uh, brothers and sisters i want to remind you of the gospel that i preached to you now we know exactly from secular history when paul was in corinth it was it was like 51 52 a.d and so he had three years before been there and so he says i want to remind you of the gospel i preached to you which you received in other words you you came to believe and on which you've taken your stand you've built your life on He says, by this gospel, you are what? Saved. Saved. And so saved is sort of the New Testament word that we're we're saved from kind of uh, the wrath or the judgment of God at the end of time. But it's something that happens now that transforms our life in the here and now as well. And so he says that um, by this gospel, you are saved. He says, of course, this is assuming that you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Like you, you continue to believe. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. And so he says, for what I received, I passed on to you. Now, uh, I want you to take your pen or a highlighter. I want you to underline or highlight those words received and passed on. Those are actually technical terms that Jewish rabbis would use to talk about kind of passing on from one generation to the next, kind of their official teaching. We'll come back to that later. But the reason I mention it now is what we're about to go into in verses 3 through 5. All right? So verses 3, 4, and 5. What we're about to go into, scholars unanimously agree that, that what Paul is about to say is not original to Paul, that he's actually quoting one of the early creeds, the earliest creeds of the early church. So he says, I, I received this. I pass it on to you. And he said, uh, and here it is. Here's the creed. That Christ died for our what? Sin. Our sins. Oh, so, so that Jesus' death, in other words, wasn't accidental. It was actually part of God's eternal plan. That, that his death was to pay the price for our sins so we could be restored to relationship with God. And he said. the that secondly that, um, that uh, and he says it was according to the scripture. So in other words that It was prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures, the the Hebrew Bible, what we would call our Old Testament today. And he said then on top of that, he was buried, so he really died, and then he was raised, and he's talking about physically now, a new body, he was raised on the third day according also to the scriptures, according to prophecy. And then that he appeared to Cephas, so Cephas is the Jewish name, for Peter. We know him as the apostle Peter. He was the leader of the band of 12, the first 12 disciples. So he said that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the 12, the rest of the apostles. And and so that ends the creed. All right, the the creed starts at verse 3 and verse 5. Now Paul's going to add some other uh, kind of eyewitness testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. So he said, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time and most of whom are still alive. I mean, you can go ask them. I uh, said, so those somehow fallen asleep, um, which is a euphemism for death. Um, I often think of this when I think of being in church. But anyway, uh, verse 7 is like, is that guy alive or is he sleeping? No. Oh, okay. So he says, then he appeared to James. So James is the brother of Jesus. He's one of the younger brothers. He grew up with Jesus. We know from other passages that that when Jesus was alive and teaching, he didn't buy into the fact that he was the Messiah, but after the resurrection, he actually met Jesus in his new body, and that convinced him. And so he went on to become one of the key leaders in the early movement of Jesus. In fact, he went on to become the top leader in the church of Jerusalem. And at the end of his life, he would be given his life. He'd be thrown off a cliff. Uh, a high point in Jerusalem to give his life for Jesus. Right? So he said he appeared to, uh, uh, in verse 7, he appeared to James and then to all the rest of the apostles, and he said, and last of all, he appeared to me, Catches, as to one abnormally born. So what's he talking about? Well, we'll talk about this later, but virtually all scholars, and I'll talk later about what I mean by scholars, but virtually all scholars agree that the Apostle Paul Was one of the the earliest and most violent persecutors of the movement of Jesus. And he was so passionate about this, he would actually go, he was like a spiritual bounty hunter. He would actually go to distant cities to actually uh, arrest and bring back Christians for trial and execution or punishment. And so on one of those journeys, uh, he was on his way to the ancient city of Damascus. So he was brought up, raised in Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, educated there, but he was leaving Jerusalem, going to Damascus, which is 150 miles away, to look for and to arrest and bring back Christians. And according to Paul's own story, we'll talk more later, that, that uh, he claims that the resurrected Jesus appeared to him outside of Damascus and not only forgave him for his uh, sins and his punishment, his persecution of the early church, but actually commissioned him to speak as an apostle for Jesus. So what what Paul is saying here, scholars agree that that event that Paul describes happened between one and three years after the death of Jesus, all right? So so what Paul is claiming is everyone else got to see Jesus within a month and a half. Uh, I was like late to the party, right? I was the last to see Jesus, and it wasn't until I saw him like a year and a half later. It's kind of his point, all right? Now, let's skip down to verse uh, 11. So he says, whether it's they, these other apostles, or it's I, uh, this is what we preach, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he rose on the third day, um, and he said, and that's what you believe, right? So, so this has all been laying a groundwork now for dealing with this current issue that's coming up in Corinth. He said, hey, remember what the gospel is when I was there, we shared this, he said, verse, if we go to verse 11, he says, but if it's preached that Christ, and remember, Christ is the Greek, uh, Greek word for Messiah, it's the same as the Hebrew word for Messiah, He said, if if it's preached that Messiah has been raised from the dead, I mean, if that's part of our core creedal gospel, then how can some of you there in the church of Corinth, notice it's not all of them, but some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead at the end of time. There's no physical resurrection. How can any of you be saying that? He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead categorically, then not even the Messiah has been raised. And he says, and here's what that means. And if the Messiah has not been raised, right, physically from the dead, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. And in verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Futile. Futile. And you are still in your sins. Why? Because the death of Jesus was for the sins of our race. And it was the fact that he was raised that proved that his death had covered the sins and therefore he had a right to be raised. And so he said, if this didn't happen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. There's, there, there's, there's no one to, to bridge the gap between you and God. And in verse 8 and 19, he says, if, this, if it's for this life, we have hope in Christ only. We are the people to be what? Let's say it together. The people to be what? Pity. Most pitied. Now here's, I want you to catch this. What Paul is saying is that this, this message of Jesus, his life, his death, and, and uh, resurrection, what we now know is like Christianity. He says if you compare Christianity to a building, the resurrection is the foundation. And if you take away the foundation, the whole building falls apart. It's a house of cards. Everything, everything depends on the resurrection of Jesus. Now the reason I mention it is because it's about this time every year that, uh, that, that what you'll see is a new novel comes out, kind of a a la Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, you know, a new novel comes out, uh, a new documentary comes on TV, um, a new article in a major news publication, you know, like maybe um, uh, I saw one today in the Wall Street Journal, but maybe it's uh, Time Magazine. Uh, uh, Maybe it's a social media uh, article that, that comes out and basically says, there is no historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, what is usually claimed nowadays is you, you still have to explain, well, if there's no resurrection, how did this story start? How did this movement get started? And what is usually claimed is what happened is that, that this resurrection, the account of the resurrection started very late. And, uh, and then it was, it was crystallized in the four gospels that we have in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that were written maybe 30, 40, 50, 60 years after the event. And, and, and they, then later in church history, those were kind of chosen to be the official account, you know, maybe in 300. And so this has become the official teaching, but the reality is there is no evidence that from the very beginning, this was the message. But what we're going to see today and modern scholarship agrees with this is that not only is that not true, the very opposite is true. And so, what I want to do today is I want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus and kind of lay out some of the historical evidence that we have that virtually all scholars agree on today. Um, uh, and, and we could do that many ways. One way we could do this, we could go and talk about the four gospels and, and why they are historically uh, credible documents. But I wanna come at it this weekend from an entirely different perspective. I I wanna look at just two letters from the Apostle Paul. The first is this letter here that we're looking at. And you may not know this, but did you know that in 1 Corinthians 15, what we just read, this is the first and earliest document we have about the resurrection of Jesus. A lot of people don't know this. A lot of people think that because our New Testaments start with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, they're the earliest, but they're not. This was written in about the year 55 AD before any of them were written. And so what we're going to do today is look at the, the evidence for the resurrection and that the early church, this was part of their initial message, not from the gospels. We're going to look at it from this letter from the Apostle Paul in one other letter from the Apostle Paul. Now, there in your note sheet, you have a section called Easter for Skeptics, the Life and Letters of Paul. Now, before I jump in and begin to lay out this evidence, I need to talk to you today what I mean when I'll use a phrase many times the vast majority of New Testament scholars and historians. Many people don't know this. I'm sure this will be a surprise to, to many of you. But if you talk about kind of New Testament uh, scholars and historians kind of worldwide, did you know the vast majority of them are not followers of Jesus. And you may not know that, but when I talk about New Testament scholars today, I'm talking about men and women who have earned their doctorate, their higher level PhDs in the field of New Testament studies, in the life of Jesus, the early church, and so on, and so, but they're, they're not believers in Jesus. This is just their chosen field of study, like other scholars might, might study ancient Rome, or like other scholars might, um, that might focus in on 20th century Chinese history, or another one, maybe medieval Europe, or something like that. So these are, these are men and women who are kind of studying the evidence, uh, but they're not believers. Now, of course, there are many New Testament scholars and historians who do believe in Jesus based on the evidence we're going to be looking at today, but they would be a minority worldwide. So you say, hey, who are who is kind of leaders at Cambridge and Oxford and uh, Duke and so on? Are you with me? So I want you to be clear in that, that when I lay out this evidence today for the, the resurrection of Jesus as part of the initial message, I, I'm not just saying, hey, Bible-believing scholars, I'm talking about the gamut, right? And that's going to be important. All right, so, so let's talk about the life and letters of Paul and how, this kind of, how, how these, these letters of Paul give historical evidence for the early teaching of the resurrection. So, there in your note sheet, you've got a couple bullets. And the first one is uh, kind of Paul's letters. We're going to start in reverse order, all right? So, I, I just want to make a point out four facts about Paul's letters. Okay, fact number one uh, the first fact is that. When it comes to Paul's letter, virtually all scholars of all stripes agree that at least six of Paul's letters, in the New Testament there are 13, but all scholars that believe in Jesus or not, they would agree that at least six of the 13 are authentic, all right? Number two, the second fact is that of these six, two of those letters are the letters we're going to be looking at today. The first is 1 Corinthians, the second is the letter of Galatians. The third thing that they would all agree virtually all scholars agree on this is that that the Apostle Paul is a credible historical witness. That if you put him on the stand, they don't don't believe his message but they believe what he's telling them happened to him. That he's a historical, uh, a credible, you put him on the witness stand that you actually, we have good That he's considered a reliable witness, right, by scholars of all stripes. And number four, the fourth thing I want to point out is that this letter that we just read, 1 Corinthians 15, that virtually all scholars would agree with what I told you earlier, the verses three through five, that creed, that Paul was not writing that, that he was quoting that, that this is one of the early creeds, one of the earliest creeds of the early church. Now, before we leave this bullet about the letters of Paul, I, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of creeds. So uh, again, virtually all scholars agree this, that, that in the New Testament, that in many of Paul's letters and letters of some of the other authors, that they will, rec- they will cite certain creeds. And these creeds, like the one we just read today, these creeds, of course, are much earlier than the documents that they're included in. They're, they're reciting information that is standardized information. Um, this is what Paul, and this is what Paul said about it. Remember I had you underline those words that he received and passed on. Again, these were technical terms used by Jewish rabbis to talk about official teaching that would be passed on accurately to be received from your teachers and passed on to the next generation of disciples. And you say, well, well why, was, why were creeds so important in whether it's in Judaism or whether it's in the life of the early church? Well, the reason is, is that uh, you may not know this, but about only 10, per- scholars estimate that only about 10% of people in the first century, Roman Greece, Roman Empire, only about 10% could actually read. So the question is, how do you pass on critical information in a way that is not compromised in a culture where no one reads? And the answer is creeds. Creeds were carefully crafted to to kind of summarize key official teaching, they would be received and then passed on. And you say, how effective was this? Extremely. Let me give you an example, but uh, I'm not going to show my hands here, but but if I were to ask you, like how many of you think you could could kind of tell me, kind of list out for me the ABCs of the English language, you know, kind of the, the letters in in order? Chances are that, Pretty much all of you, maybe, maybe not some, I'm looking at some of you, but uh, I'm thinking that pretty much like all of us could say, Yeah, I'm confident we can do that. And I'd say, Okay, do it. And you know what you would do? You would start singing the song <laughs> A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and you're writing it down, right? You learned that when you were probably four years old. And yet now you're an adult, you haven't thought about that in years. And yet, the moment I ask you, you can recite it. That's the power of Crete. Short statement, summarize the core message. And what I want you to catch is virtually all scholars agree that in 1 Corinthians 3 through 5, these three verses, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised. On the third day, according to the scriptures, he appeared to Cephas, and then the rest, that this is one of the earliest creeds of the early church. Now, I don't have time today to go into kind of all the evidence on that. We'll talk about it later. I'll, I'll kind of give you some resources in, uh, later. But the four things I want you to catch about Paul's letters that are important for us today is again number one that uh, that that uh, all scholars of all stripes consider at least six of the 13 authentic. Two of those six are the ones we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians and Galatians. Number three, that they all see Paul as a credible witness when he's telling the details of his life, his, his journeys. And number four, that uh, all scholars agree that in, in 1 Corinthians 15, three through five, that is one of the earliest creeds of the early church. All right, that's all we need for now. Let's move on. Let's talk about Paul's life, right? So we already talked about this. Scholars all agree that when Paul tells you the story of his life, kind of his travels, that it's accurate, it's, it's reliable historical information. And so what I want to do is I, I want to kind of lay out a timeline, an official timeline that scholars would agree on, on kind of Paul's life. So there in your note sheet, you have this timeline, and all I want to do is focus on four key dates, right? That scholars you know, by and large would agree with of all stripes. Number one, uh, first let's talk about the crucifixion. So you may not know this, we're going to talk about this more later, but in recent New Testament scholarship, maybe the last 30 years, 20, 30 years that, that pretty much all scholars agree on certain things about the man Jesus of Nazareth. We'll talk later about 12 things they agree that's historical evidence on. But, but the, the thing, all scholars there was a man named Jesus, and he was from Nazareth, uh, yet he, he was a miracle worker, or some kind of signs followed him, something happened. Uh, number three, that yes, he was crucified by Rome for high treason, and yes. Um, that, uh, uh, that he um, was, was buried and really killed, right? So everyone's going to agree on that. And the question is, well, when did that happen? And the vast majority of scholars would say the date for that is 30 AD, all right? So that's, that's the first date. Second date is the day 32 AD. This is a date when most scholars would, would put uh, down for Paul's conversion. So we talked about this that. The Apostle Paul, persecutor turns uh, promoter, apostle of Jesus uh, because of this uh, experience that he claimed to be uh, uh, encounter with the resurrected Jesus in his new body. And uh, so so scholars would place that between uh, one to three years after the resurrection or after the crucifixion. And so I'm gonna split the difference I'm going to say, well, let's call it two years. Let's put it at 32 AD. But it could be 31 AD. It could be 33 AD. But let's just say it's right around 30. Okay, the third date, it says 35 AD, Paul's return to Jerusalem. Right? And so remember, scholars look at Paul's life as an accurate. He tells a story of his life accurately. And his letter to the Galatians, for reasons I won't go into here, that he feels compelled to remind them of his personal history. And so there in your note sheet, you have a a, uh, uh, a quote about um, Paul, and he says uh, about his life. And so what he's gonna do is give us an itinerary of his life after this encounter with Jesus outside the walls of Damascus. So he says, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. Uh, kind of who I was before I became a promoter of Jesus. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. We've already read that. He says, but when God was pleased to reveal his son in my life, uh, talking about this, this encounter with Jesus he claims he had, he says, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem. So Remember, he was raised in Jerusalem, educated in Jerusalem. He was coming from Jerusalem to arrest followers of Jesus in Damascus. But he said, after he met Jesus, he did not go back to Jerusalem right away. He said, I didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who are apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. So Arabia is an area kind of in ancient times, like south of Damascus, you know, where he met Jesus. And then all the way down to the Arabian Peninsula. We don't know exactly where he went, but he said, I went first to Arabia out to the desert. Later I returned to Damascus. Right? He said, then after what? After three years. This is why scholars would put this first return to Jerusalem at 35 AD. You with me? Is this all making sense? Okay. And he says, so so why did you go back, Paul? He says, Well, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. Who's Cephas? Cephas. Yeah, the apostle Peter. And uh, I stayed with him how long? Okay, so a little more than two weeks. I saw none of the other apostles, only James. James. Remember, the brother of Jesus who wasn't a believer. He said, only James, the Lord's brother. And he says, I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. So this passage takes us back to the story that we started the day with. Remember we started the day, a story of this man who is returning to his hometown, actually a large metropolitan city where he'd been raised, where he'd been educated, but he's been gone for three years. And though it's only been three years it seems like a lifetime ago. And as he's approaching the city just a, a mass of emotion, memories, thoughts, are fighting for priority in his life. Remember when he left three years ago, he was a leader of the movement to violently persecute, torture, force to blaspheme, and execute Christians. And now he's coming back as one of them. And can you imagine what it would be like for him to be coming home to this place where you're well-known as one of the leading, the leaders of Judaism when you left, to to be coming home as traitor number one and trying to meet with the leaders of the movement that you were trying to destroy last time you were here? And I often think about this. What would this be like for him? He gets there, he says, you know what? All the other apostles were out of town He says, but Peter was there. Remember, Peter was the leader of the 12. And he said, and Jesus' brother, who later became the leader of the church of Jerusalem, James was there. Can you imagine what it would be like to sit in on those meetings in those two weeks and the questions Paul would have about Jesus and what was he like and his ministry and what did he teach and what did he do? And then for James, what was it like to grow up with Jesus as an older brother who never got in trouble, (laughs) who always was right, you know? And you say, well, why is this such an important date on our timeline? The reason is because virtually all scholars of all stripes believe it was that during this two weeks that Paul received the creed that he recites in 1 Corinthians 15. And that he would deliver 15 years later after this meeting, on the last date on your timeline in 51, 52, which is a solid date, one of the most solid dates in the New Testament, because we know from Roman history when this was, that it was 15 years later he shared with them this creed. And the reason this is so important is that this is why the vast majority of scholars of all tri- types now, that they will no longer say that the resurrection of Jesus was a teaching that slowly evolved over time because these people lived in a pre-scientific age and they were open to supernatural. But now we know those kind of things can't happen. That, that virtually the vast majority of New Testament scholars, no matter what they believe, will no longer claim that. What they will agree with is that the teaching of Jesus or the teaching about the resurrection of Jesus, which was encapsulated in this carefully constructed creed, goes back to the earliest days of the movement of Jesus. Now, just because of the limits of time, I've had to do sort of a quick flyby on this evidence and on this argument. The whole point is that what is often claimed, that this developed over time, there, there's, no, there's no basis for it. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Um, and, I, and I'd love to lay out more evidence, but we don't really have time. So for those of you who are interested or want to research this more, I have put there on your note sheet, there's a couple books by a New Testament scholar named Gary Habermas, who he lays out how this whole evidence uh, figures out. And, and the first one, if you look on the, if the first one there is, is actually not, it's a book, but it's actually not a normal book. It's actually the transcript, very simple transcript of a six-part series, a documentary, where Gary is interviewed on this information. The second book is a more academic book, a more scholarly book that lays out kind of why New Testament scholars of all stripes believe this today. And if you turn to the very back of your note sheet, you'll see a little QR code. And if you were to scan that, uh, it, would, it would not only give you links to these two books, but also some other books that give evidence for the resurrection of Jesus or the reasonableness, the reasonableness of Christianity. Right? But we're not done with evidence. We'll come back for that in a minute. But I want to change gears right now. And I want to go to that last section of your note sheet. that says, Easter for skeptics, the key question. And on this Easter weekend, here's a question that I have for you, is that how will you respond to the resurrection? You know, today I've been laying out the evidence for the the teaching of the early church, from the very beginning that they taught the resurrection, the whole church was built on this. And so the, the common claim of whether it's the novels or TV documentaries, like this developed over time. It's just just universally by top scholars of all stripes. Like, that is not true. It came from the earliest days. And in fact, it's really interesting. If you were to go back, say, 50 years in time, even with New Testament scholars, there would be many New Testament scholars who would say, no, I don't believe in the resurrection, and here's what I believe happened. And they would propose an alternate theory. Like, if you go way back in time, maybe 50 years, there was a very famous book. Some of you may remember it. It was called the Passover plot. And in this this kind of book, this, this theory was proposed that, that Jesus sort of planned his own death and resurrection. That, that what actually happened is that when he went to the cross, he took a drug so it would look like he had passed out. You know, he pass out, and it looked like he was dead, and then he would be able to come back and kind of fulfill these messianic. Prophecies. That's pretty crazy, right? But it was very popular at the time. Similar theory would be that people, some scholars used to argue, well, what happened is it, uh, it, that Jesus was crucified, but in the cool of the tomb, that he, he, looked, he was in a coma, he revived and came. And that's how these stories got started. There's others who would say, no, I think what happened is that is the disciples, because of their deep grief, they were so depressed. That when they went on that Sunday morning, they got confused about where the tomb was, and they went to the wrong one and it was empty. And so they, they assumed that that's how the story got started. Others would say, I think what happened is that maybe one had a one or more had a kind of visions or hallucinations of a risen g. And that's what happened. But one by one, these theories have been struck down. And the reason is in the last 40 or 50 years like more and more evidence has come before we understand much more about ancient history. And, and for the most part, the New Testament scholars of all stripes will agree on, they don't believe in the resurrection, but they will agree on 12 historical facts about the life and death of Jesus. And there are your note sheet, I listed these 12 facts. Now again, not, not, not all scholars would agree to all 12, they might give you four, they might give you six, but most would give you these 12. He says, so this is from Gary Habermas's book, the more academic one, and he says, there are a minimum number of facts agreed upon uh, by practically all critical scholars. So by critical, we don't mean negative. We mean like New Testament criticism, who who kind of uh, uh, take, they they approach it from an academic standpoint. He said, uh, whatever their school of thought, at least 12 separate facts are considered to be knowable history. Like we would know about Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus or someone else. So here they are. Jesus, number one, he died by crucifixion. No one denies that. Number two, he was buried. Number three, that his death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope, believing his life had ended. I agrees on that. Uh, number four, he says, although not widely accepted, so he says this one's a little of the twelve, this one's a little bit, not, not everyone would agree with this one. Some would, some wouldn't. But he says, uh, many scholars hold that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered to be empty a few days later. He says, critical scholars further agree that number five, the disciples had experiences that they believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. And because of these experiences, number six, they were transformed from doubters who were afraid to identify with Jesus. Remember how they all ran, Peter denied him and so on. And they're hiding in the upper room. That they were transformed from doubters who were afraid to identify with Jesus to bold proclaimers of his death and resurrection. And number seven, they all agree that this message was the center of their preaching. This message of the resurrection, it didn't come late. They all agree. No, this was from the very start. This message was the center of the preaching of the early church. And number eight, was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem, right where it happened, where Jesus died and was buried like a month and a half before. As a result of this teaching, the church was born, in, uh, born and grew. Ten, and was Sunday as the primary day of worship. Now this is huge. Remember these first disciples, they're all Jews. They've been worshiping on Saturday, on the Sabbath, their whole lives. This is the holy day. And yet, yet they all switch and very, very early on begin worshiping on Sunday due to the resurrection. He says, James, remember we talked about him, the brother of Jesus who was a skeptic and then was converted. James, who had been a skeptic, was converted to the faith when he also believed that he saw the resurrected Jesus. And number 12, a few years later, Paul was converted by an experience he likewise believed to be historical uh, appearance of the risen Jesus. And so, so what's happened is because of the unanimity in New Testament scholars, scholarship will last me 30 years. Like what's happened is none of these scholars anymore we'll be putting forward an alternate solution uh, because these 12 facts that most agree on would wipe them all out. In fact, there in your note sheet, Habermas says this, each naturalistic theory, in other words, you know, uh, not the supernatural theory that God raised them, but every kind of naturalistic theory is beset by many major objections that invalidate it as a viable hypothesis, but the reality is, I think, as a if you, if you come to this facts of history as an unbiased observer, and you look at these twelve facts as like they're they're twelve pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, that when you put these twelve together, it be, it paints an incredibly strong picture, a compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And you say, well, if that's true, then why don't most scholars believe it? Well, I'll tell you why. For most, it's one of two reasons, I think. Number one, these scholars have a naturalistic worldview. In other words, they start the study with a conviction that there is no God and that Everything that happens in creation has to be explained by natural causes. That, that, that's, not, that's a a priori assumption. That's not based on evidence. And so when they come to the evidence, this is a crazy thing. The same evidence that causes them to say, yes, we believe these 12 things are historically true, the same evidence doesn't carry them on. Because there's an assumption that, no, I know what it looks like. But we all know these kind of things can't happen. And I think the second reason, and this applies not only to scholars, it applies to all of us, is that the implications of the resurrection of Jesus are stunning. Like if he truly rose from the dead, it validates everything he claimed about himself. It validates everything he taught. And what it means is that Jesus is the Lord and King of all creation, and that one day we will stand before him and be judged for our lives. And there are many of us who don't want anyone telling us what to do. And so the implications for a scholar to change position, you lose all credibility, you, lose, you, you may lose your job. But if you just look as an honest observer, of these 12 facts, there is, catch this, in the scholarly community, by and large, the, the vast, there is no alternative explanation. It's like, well, we don't really know what happened. Uh, we know it couldn't be this, because those kind of things don't happen. You know, all the evidence points like this, but, but we know that couldn't be. And, and so having laid out that evidence, the question is, how will each of us respond to the resurrection. And what the New Testament writers, what Jesus and these New Testament apostles who are eyewitnesses, what they're claiming is that what we decide about the evidence actually determines not only our life here and now, it determines our eternal destiny. Because the way this gospel story goes is that That as a result of his resurrection, Jesus has ascended to be the top ruler of the cosmos. And then every one of us will one day go one-on-one with him and be judged for our lives. And uh, in fact, in Romans chapter 2, the apostle Paul puts it like this. And this is one of the other six, uh, six letters everyone agrees on. He says, this will take place, he's talking about the judgment, on the day when God judges people's secrets about Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so what what the New Testament proclaims is not only did Jesus die for our sins, and not only did he rise from the dead, but at the end of time, every one of us is going one-on-one with him. And this is why the message of Jesus, the life, the death, and the resurrection, is called good news. Because the message is, is that none of us are going to live up to the standards of a holy God. And the good news is that God has made a way, sending His Son to die for our sins so that our, rela- our sins can be forgiven and that our relationship with God can be based not on our performance, but on His. And that God has made a way for us to be restored and renewed forgiven, transformed here and now by the power of His resurrection to live the lives we were created to live and that when He comes back at the end of time that we will be restored and receive our new bodies that are just like His new body to live in the new creation. And that's why we call it good news. The question is, how will you respond to the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, the implication, and we often miss it, is if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then it means he's alive today. And he is still changing lives with his resurrection power today. And so as you reflect on this question, how will you respond to the resurrection? We wanna share just a firsthand life story of someone in our church who experienced the resurrection life of Jesus just a year and a half ago. Let's, let's call our attention to the screens.
1: My name is Chris Neal. I have been attending Rocky Peak for about a year and a half. I work for a production doing IT for the office and I personally love to serve. Growing up with my parents was a true blessing. They tried to open my avenues to everything, whether it was sports or playing music, schoolwork, college. They were always trying to get me into the the avenue that I excelled best in. I just had a really good childhood. My sister is Kellyanne. Growing up, we actually butted heads quite a bit. She was my older sister and I had a problem with authority but she has always been there to support me, even though at times I didn't see it as that. The only time that I had going to church growing up was really in elementary school and middle school. I didn't really find any friendship there, so I kind of drew away from the Lord. When I first was in high school, I was doing very well, and I was connecting with teachers and some of the good kids at school, but I was definitely an overweight kid in school, and kids would pick on me for it. I would answer that with aggression, and I would show them exactly what my weight could do. I had gone to therapy a couple of times. Even though the therapy helped me get through a lot of my aggression issues, I still had this this hole inside of me that I was trying to fill. I started filling it with friends and the people around me, and in order to fit in with those friends, I had to do what they did, and that also meant drinking and using drugs. But I did that through high school and into college, and I was definitely burning the candle at both ends. In those years, I thought that seeking pleasure was my purpose in life. That getting to the end of the week and having fun was exactly what I was living for. I was walking through life like everything was cupcakes and rainbows. That things were all good, but really deep down it wasn't. I was still trying to find something to fill this hole inside me. And then the pandemic came. I know that the pandemic is terrible on many levels, but for me, it allowed me to stay home and drink anytime I wanted. At one point I was drinking a bottle and a half of whiskey a day. I definitely was not living a good life. I found myself isolated and it took me away from all my friendships. One early morning, it was about 1 AM and I was obscenely drunk and I started crying. I felt that there was no way out, that everything that I had done in my life was pointless. That really made me feel like I had hit my bottom, that I had come to a point where there was no hope in life, that what had originally given me pleasure had now trapped me. And then I realized that I couldn't do it on my own. And so the first time since middle school, I had said a prayer. God, I am done with this. Whatever it takes, please. I prayed because I had nothing else I could do. It was at that point that I realized that I was lying to essentially everybody in my life about my drinking. So I called the one person that I knew would understand. I called my father and I told him everything. True to his nature, my father let me talk and listened and then told me that I needed to stop. I tried, really. I told myself that night that I would not drink again until it was the next morning when I started to have those uncontrollable shakes again. I knew I had a little bit left in my bottle of whiskey And so I drank it and it was on the way to work that I started to have the uncontrollable shakes again without any whiskey around me. So instead of going to work, I checked myself into the hospital. As I was laying there in the hospital bed, I look up on the ceiling and I see an AA coin. I kept looking up and down at it and saying, no, that's not something I need to do. I don't know who put that there, but it was something that started me down a path. And I went to my first AA meeting, which was a book study. The topic of the book at that time was step number two, which was realizing that only a power greater than ourselves could cure us of this insanity. When I had realized that I needed to find a higher power, that I couldn't do this alone, I went to a brother in AA that had 15 years of sobriety, asked him, how can I believe in God? I'm an engineer and I believe that if you can't qualify or quantify something, then how could it exist? He looked me straight in the eye and said, well, Chris, God is the ultimate engineer. God made right angles. God created all of this. Look at what he's done. And that was the mustard seed that I needed. I called the one person in my life that I knew was very God-centered, and that was my sister. I still remember the phone conversation that we had where it was, hey, Kelly, I, I need to know more about this God person and what he can do for me. She offered to come sit down with me at the church of Rocky Peak. On the first Sunday that I had gone, the topic was Jesus is love and Jesus loves you. I started to cry because for somebody like me who tries crazy things just to be accepted, here's Jesus that loves me unconditionally. It was a couple of months later that I finally felt ready to give my life to Christ. And I prayed with my sister in the solar parking lot at Rocky Peak. Jesus, I give my life to thee. It was one of those moments with my sister that I will forever cherish. As I embraced my sister, she and I cried together, and I realized that it was gonna be okay. What really compelled me to give my life to Jesus was the fact that he was even willing to help somebody like me. No matter what I do, and no matter what I've done, Jesus loves me. I discovered that Serving was really a pathway to God for me. Being able to help somebody that couldn't do something for themselves really got me out of myself. And I was finally able to feel that sense of purpose, that sense of comfort, that joy. Currently, God is still working in my life. I'm learning to love better, learning to serve better. There are so many avenues from which he's doing that. A lot of the books that I have been reading, the sermons that I hear at church on Sundays, the examples that I see at CR, the examples that I see at Life Group. The true change is still happening, but I'm putting my trust in Jesus. Putting my trust in the Lord has taken so much weight off of my shoulders. I got carrying a bag of bricks, and I put it down. And Jesus picked
0: it up. Let's pray together. So Father, today we've stood back and we've looked at the story of your son's his life, his death, his resurrection, what it means, the gospel, that he died for our sins. And we've explored just one avenue of evidence. There's so many others. We could have talked about the reliability of the gospel documents and how they compare to the historicity, the reliability of any other ancient documents, and how they're just like to the nth power more reliable. We could have come at this from so many different ways, but we look at this through the writings of the one you appeared to on the road to Damascus. Changed him from a violent persecutor to an apostle overnight. And Father, we each have to respond to this gospel, to this evidence for the resurrection. Lord, in, your, in his letter to the Romans, Paul says that your son was born according to the line of David, according to his human nature, but he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so, Father, we pray that as we reflect on that evidence, that you'll be leading us and guiding us. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk to, to different different groups here. Maybe you're a skeptic. You came today invited by a friend, or... Because you had to with relatives or whatever the case might be, but you find yourself here and you entered as a skeptic, and I guess the question for you is, well, how will you respond to this evidence because the claim of Jesus, the claim of the New Testament, is your eternal destiny not to speak of your life here and now rests upon how you respond. Some of us here came in we would be we would call ourselves followers of Jesus or believers, we would identify. The reality is we've not been listening to Jesus. We've not been following him. We've not been living the new resurrection life that we've been off in a distant distant land like the prodigal. It's time for us to come home. For some of us here that are, are in that skeptical place, today may not be your day to say yes to Jesus. You may be like Chris in the video that he said it took a couple months before he was ready to do that. And today may be your, your first step in that journey, that as you've heard the evidence, you sense something pulling you. And your, your first step is to say, I'm going to go out. I'm going to click on one of those links. I'm going to get those books. I'm going to see it for myself. I'm going I'm to do the research. One of the most beautiful things about Christianity is it never asks us to take a step of faith on blind, like blind faith. It's, not, it's, not the, it's often represented that way, but it's actually the opposite. I was thinking last night at this point in the service about the account of the resurrection in John's gospel. How Jesus appeared to them and they, none of them believed at first. They, they didn't have any category for a resurrection in their brains. But he showed them his hands. He showed them his feet. He ate with them. He gave them what Luke would later call many convincing proofs that it was him and he was alive. Then I think of a week later, the one disciple who wasn't there, Thomas, and when he came back, he had made the statement that unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I can put my fingers in the nail prints in his hand, the scars, unless I see the, the, the wound in his sight, I'll never believe. And when Jesus came a week later, he didn't rebuke Thomas, he just offered him the evidence. And so following Jesus is never something we do like a blind step of faith. It's based on evidence. Maybe you're not ready, you just need more evidence and you need to start searching that out. But my hunch is that for some of us here today, maybe those online, maybe those over in one of our venues, that today is your day. You sense that Jesus is alive and you sense that the story is true and you're sick of the life you have, and you want a a new life, a resurrection life, and today's your day. And for those of you who are in that boat, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. I want to encourage you to pray it underneath your breath, maybe in your brain. But what I know is if you're sincere, that God will hear. And today is, is going to be your resurrection day. And so I want to lead you in this very simple prayer invite you to pray with me, dear Jesus. I ask you into my life. I bow my knee before you as my Lord, the leader of my life, and as my Savior. And I ask you to forgive me, not based on my life, but based on what you did for me on the cross. I ask you to not only forgive me, but to fill me with your spirit and the resurrection power to rise with you to a whole new life, to teach me how to follow you, live this life I was designed to live. If you just prayed that prayer with me, first of all, I want to welcome you to the kingdom. It's the best thing you've ever done. You're in for an adventure. We'd also like to help you on that new journey. And so inside your program, there's a little connect card. I ask you to fill that out. And then on the back, just write, write me a note. Michael, I prayed the prayer, or ask Jesus in my life. We'll know what you mean. And this week, I'll send you out just a short little letter. Here's some, some kind of hot tips for your first few steps with Jesus, kind of get you started. For those of you who are watching online, if you've prayed that prayer, just contact us info at rockypeak.org, share what you did, and we will send you the same letter. For those of you here on campus, outside, and whether it's the lobbies or out in the patios, there are little kiosks, uh, like giving kiosks, where you we can drop offerings, but there are also places to drop these cards. And so Lord, we come before you as your church on this Resurrection Sunday, and we know that as followers of Jesus, that the resurrection, like Dre said at the time, it's not like a single day thing, it's everyday thing. You call us to leave the past behind, to put off former things, to rise with you to a new life, and we want to recommit to that. And we want to sing out our affirmation, Lord, of that, these important gospel truths we've been studying today. We pray that you'd help us as we worship you. Come to us now, Holy Spirit. Write these words in our heart, we pray in Jesus' name.